0: A warning to listeners. This episode includes explicit language.
1: Meredith Hunter didn't tell his girlfriend much. She didn't know about his mother's schizophrenia or his stays in juvenile detention centers. What Patty Bredahop did know is how Meredith made her feel.
2: And he didn't walk, he kind of floated. He had this walk where he was just like super cool and he always in a suit. And when he picked me, I mean, it was like, you know, that made me feel like special, you know, like, you know, and plus he was very sweet. I mean, I know we really had a connection.
1: He was 18. She was 17. Finding each other was a kind of escape from an unpleasant past. Music was another escape, like it is for so many teenagers. Meredith told his sister Dixie about this free concert with these huge bands. She was worried. Mm Mm-hmm. Meredith was black. Patty is white. A biracial couple didn't stand out in the Bay Area where they lived, but an hour east at Altamont.
2: And I said, you know, that's not a good place for you. I said because my husband owned some trucks. That he would go and collect iron and stuff out there, and he would take me. And I have seen Ku Klux Klan's crosses that have been burnt in the field. And I told him, I said, I, I said, you, you, I said you don't do that.
1: Meredith had been to the Monterey Jazz Festival earlier in the year, but he'd missed Woodstock. He wasn't going to miss this.
2: I thought it would be a big concert. Nobody knew like exactly what it was going to be like out there. Peace and love and hippies and all that, you know. So we thought, oh, it's just a big party.
1: In a few hours, Patty and Meredith will be at the center of the Altamont story. A Hell's Angel will leap off a short stage and stab Meredith right in front of Patty. 300,000 people in the Rolling Stones will be near the stabbing, but most won't know it happens in the darkness and chaos. So much violence happened at Altamont in 1969. But it wasn't that way at the start. In fact, it felt hopeful. I'm Jeff Edgers, the national arts reporter at the Washington Post. This is the story of Altamont the first rock concert disaster.
3: December 6th, 1969. It's about uh, 2.30 in the morning. We're just on the outskirts of a racetrack. What's the name of this racetrack, Pete? Oh, what the hell, we'll find out
1: later on. People are showing up early for what they're hoping is a really exciting day of music, from Santana, Jefferson Airplane, the Flying Burrito Brothers. You've also got Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, The Grateful Dead, and of course, The Rolling Stones.
3: Right now I'd estimate there's about uh, 500
1: cars here, maybe uh, 2,000 to 4,000 people right now. Just some... George Feast is in the crowd it's with his tape recorder. He's just a fan. He came out in the middle of the night, and he's running the tape throughout the day.
4: A multitude of
1: fires all over the place. Every once in a while, people start war-hooping
3: just to keep warm or just to have some sort of a get-together of an enjoyment of this evening. The herbs are in the air.
1: George wouldn't agree to an interview, but he's shared these hours of recordings. I
3: read stuff made from
1: grapes. Right, Pete? <laughs> Good old vino. Our friend Wine. At first, the whole atmosphere seems almost nice. Some dude back there is uh, behind us, is
3: uh, throwing free tabs of acid around. People are standing around him like a bunch of fish or her seals waiting for their food or something. Right? And he's yelling, uh, if a narc steps on me,
1: we'll step on him. Outstanding. It feels like this is going to be a great party. A slow trickle of people becomes a steady stream. crowd is definitely picking up, covering the hills. You can
3: hardly even see the grass right now. Probably throughout the day you won't be able to see it again.
1: And they keep coming.
3: The guy on the radio said that people that are trying to come now, forget it. They're not going to make it. I can't believe it, man. I can't believe a crowd here. I can't even see far back enough to see how many people are going back.
1: By the late morning, the bulk of the crowd has arrived. 300,000 people. That's like six times the number of people who can fit into Yankee Stadium. I mean, it's an enormous amount of people. Griel Marcus, a 24-year-old writer, was covering the event for Rolling Stone magazine. And he couldn't believe what he was experiencing. There's,
0: there's just a feeling of you're on the moon. Right from the beginning, there was just something strange about it all. That's right. It was cold. I'm standing on one leg. The crowd had closed in around me, and there actually wasn't room. Nobody would make room for me to put my other leg down. There was an unpleasantness. There was a selfishness. There was an impatience.
3: What's happening now, if you hear it in the background, is a lot of people are throwing things at each other. The hill people against the ground people. Food, toilet paper rolls. Rocks, frisbees.
0: There was a sort of gimme sense to the crowd. It was unmistakable. You felt it right away. So, okay, all right, see what happens. You know, it's still cold, maybe it'll warm up.
1: More people arrive and push from behind toward the stage. Some of the Hells Angels who were protecting the stage came early and hung out. The rest of the Angels entered the scene more dramatically. The Angels decided to run their bikes right through the
5: center of the crowd from the back forward over the hill. This is Mickey Hart of the
4: Grateful Dead. You could see like 70 or 100 motorcycles coming over. The hill. We come down in low gear, uh, you know, like didn't try to run into anybody or do any of
1: that kind of thing. Sonny Barger, founder of the Oakland chapter of the Hells Angels, recounted it to radio host Stefan Ponick at local station K-SAN the next day. One
4: broad uh, jumped up and said something that pertained to a four-letter word, them angels. You know, one of the angels stopped his bike and uh, he had his old lady on the back and he said, are you going to let them? talk about angels like that, and she jumped off the bike and smacked the other broad that said that, that was in the crowd, got back on the bike and we proceeded down, no problem. We pulled up in front of the stage and parked where we were told we were supposed to park. And this is what we were told, we were like supposed to sit on the edge of the stage and keep people off and, you know, like a little bit back if we could.
5: And. Yeah. All these motorcycles and then the people were touching the bikes and the angels were hitting and back and they were hitting and it was fighting and the stage. Particularly all these people down here. None of
6: you are working on the construction of the stage or the sound system. You can help us best by leaving the area. He's behind the stage, walking this down case, the path that you can't cool. see. Behind the stage, you'll see a large sign up.
1: Sam Cutler is the tour manager for the Stones. We'll hear his voice all day. What he'll try to do is get on the mic and basically direct traffic.
6: If you're having a really bad trip, we have um, a nice sort of cool and gentle place for everybody who is into that thing to go to and relax and just to work
1: it all out, which is
6: around the
1: corner. Up Sam's up. primary job is just to protect his band but in many ways, he's as close to a leader as you get in this situation.
6: Please come round to the front of the stage. We've got the whole of the backstage area left for the people who are working. Um, And if we're gonna start music here,
1: we'd like to start it clean. We'd like to start it pure. Finally, just before noon, the concert begins.
6: we've managed to get the whole thing together as I said, in 20 hours. And we're still an hour and ten minutes earlier than we said we would start. That's at one o'clock. Still only 10 to 12. So thanks to everybody who helped. And I'd like to point out to everybody here that this could be the greatest party of 1969 that we've had. Yeah! Let's have a party. Outstanding! And let's welcome the first band that's going to produce party music for
5: us, Santana. Outstanding! Sit down, sit down.
0: And then when, you know, I've told this story many times, but it's indelible to me. You've seen the pictures of the naked fat guy, right?
1: Briel's talking about this man who appears at Altamont in the film Give Me Shelter. Nobody knows who this fan is. Unfortunately, they all refer to him as the naked fat guy. I tried to find out a name or anything, but it's like he was created just for this moment
0: and poof, he's gone. He got up when Santana started to play. He got up and started dancing and it looked like he was just being free and all of that. He took his clothes off, but he wasn't. Uh, I was close enough to see that he was using his dancing as an excuse to stomp people. He was actually moving all around and stomping on people. So it was really ugly and awful. Um, And the angels then came in and started beating him up with pool cues. They've sawed off pool cues and they've filled them with lead. They
1: jump into the crowd, raise them, and start beating.
4: It, it.
5: Santana's gonna be it. Peace! Stop fighting! Peace!
0: And I looked around and I saw all these people peace. holding up peace signs. And I had never seen anything so pathetic in my life, so useless, holding up a peace sign in front of Hell's Angels, you know, smashing somebody with leaded lead-weighted pool cues it, and they beat the shit out of him and he was so stoned he kept getting up and trying to dance he wasn't resisting them wasn't fighting with them he just wasn't going to stop and he just kept going and I was just disgusted I, I, I just felt It's an overwhelming feeling of revulsion. What am I doing here? These are not my people. This is stupid.
3: Don't worry about the pool sticks. It was the guy who was hitting his fault. What did he do? I didn't see it. He came out there nude. He started yelling and screaming some girl, you know, and they pushed him. That's what started the whole thing.
0: So finally the Especially. angels dragged the guy off and the crowd goes right back to where it was.
6: Get out! Do it now,
1: man!
6: Yeah! I'd like to ask Go that more. before Go. the next bag, the whole of us return to a, a calmer, if you like, a less hysterical sort of atmosphere and create our own sort of atmosphere, our own feeling around this stage. The warmest, the warm welcome for the Jefferson Airplane. Jefferson Airplane.
1: Jefferson Airplane are huge stars and huge icons of San Francisco. Grace Slick and Marty Ballin are the lead singers. Grace Slick noticed something going wrong. There's scuffling going on over here We're on the stage scene, and this is where Marty was. Marty Ballin. Apparently, he saw the Hell's Angels beating a black man. He didn't like it and got into a scuffle with an angel named Animal. Marty swore at Animal, and you do not swear at Animal. So Animal punched him in the face, knocked him out. And I went back to the drummer and said, Spencer, what's going on? He said, somebody hit Marty. And he keeps, and I go, what? They're playing, and then they're like, where's Marty?
3: Hell's Angels?
1: Oh no, Hell's Angels and in
3: the, in the airplane no! in going fight.
1: Marty wakes up after he gets knocked down and he sees Animal. These guys know each other. The Animal's almost the taking care of him, tending to
5: him. He looked at Marty and said, He never say fuck you to a Hell's Angel. Marty's on the floor. He says, Fuck you again. And Animal
1: knocks him out again.
5: So our crew came and dragged the uh, uh, Hell's Angel off of Marty. And we continued and played the set.
1: At this point, a few people start attacking the Hells Angels. And you know what? Some of them people was loaded on some drugs. This is Sonny Barger again on K San radio the next day. They come
4: running off of the hill yelling, hey, you know, and jump on somebody, and it wasn't even always jumping on angels, but when they jumped on an angel, they got hurt.
1: A few people go after the Angels' bikes near the stage. Ain't
4: nobody gonna kick my motorcycle. And they might think because they're in a crowd of 300,000 people that they can do it and get away with it. But when you're standing there looking at something that's your life and everything you've got is invested in that thing and you love that thing better than you love anything in the world and you see a guy kick it, you know who he is. You have to go through 50 people to get to him. You're gonna get him. They started trying to destroy our bikes, and we're not gonna stand for it, and then that made it personal.
1: The bands begin to realize that something is really wrong. They quickly go through their sets. You can hear the sound of a Moog synthesizer, the Flying Burrito Brothers, and then Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young take the stage. I asked David Crosby what he remembered from that set. Like, uh, was your set good, or like, what did you play, or no? I was terrified. You took off after your set? Fast as we could. Was there a helicopter? I don't even remember. Get up. Get out of here as fast as you can before somebody gets killed right in front of you. Before you get killed. Up next is the Grateful Dead, you know, the hometown heroes. The one band who could turn it around. But something happens at that point. The dead meet backstage and say, you know what, it's a bummer, man. We don't want to be part of this. And they take off, they're gone. We couldn't do it, we couldn't do it. The crowd was beat, you know, everybody was beat
5: spiritually, nobody can go on. I mean, all, it was just, it was too much of a mess. It was over, said and done. It was a
1: horrific day for music. The band's so key to organizing this free concert decides this concert couldn't be saved. Which is one of the the great,
7: you know, acts of moral cowardice in the history of the music business. That wasn't their finest moment. They didn't trust their own music. We just looked at each other and, uh, you know, it was just not the right
5: thing. We, Grateful Dead music cannot happen in a situation like that. We couldn't have brought our spirits to bear to be able to do... Grateful Dead music justice. And we just said, this isn't
1: the place for us. The sun goes down and the temperature drops. Nobody's on stage. The crowd is edging. More drinking, more acid for the crowd, and the angels. The angels are fed up. They want this thing over with. The crowd's frustrated too. They're jockeying for space. They want the stones. The Stones are back in a trailer tuning their guitars. Finally, after 75 minutes... Pitch black as the stones start to play Jumpin' Jack Flash. The crowd surges. A dog wanders across the stage. Fans hang on to stage monitors. A hell's angel dances wildly. Others roam. They play Carol, a Chuck Berry cover. Then they get to the third song, Sympathy for the Devil. It's a fascinating song. Jagger would later say it was influenced by the French poet Baudelaire and Russian novelist Bulgakov. Let's consider the context for a second. Here we get Jagger singing as the devil and the damage he's done as real-life chaos swirls around him. When you watch this moment in Gimme Shelter, in the documentary, you see that this is where the stones start to lose it. They lose control, and I've never seen the Rolling Stones lose control. All these leather-jacketed angels swarm past Mick Jagger, and Mick is scared. He walks back and actually knocks over the microphone stand. Hey, hey
6: people. Sisters, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Come on now. That means everybody just cool out. We can cool out everybody. I know. I don't know what happened, I couldn't see, but I hope you're alright. Are you alright? No thanks to the angels! Okay, let's just give let's just give ourselves like we'll give ourselves another half a minute before we get our breath back. Cool, we can go. We always have something very funny happens when we start that number. Uh. <laughs>
1: wouldn't have been safer to say you know what this is clearly this is a messed up situation it's disorganized it's dangerous we're just we're bagging
0: they couldn't they were on the stage they were surrounded by hell's angels who were telling them to play or else at one point Keith Richards says and Keith Richard's the only person who said anything on stage to express anger disgust Refusal. The only person who said no, in any way, you can hear it on the tapes. Yeah. Those cats call him, and we don't play. You know, And I mean, there's not that many others. Not that kind there. If he doesn't
2: stop him,
5: man.
0: And an angel came up to him and grabbed him and said, "Play, fucker. You're gonna play." They had no idea that they would not be beaten or killed themselves if they didn't play. So they had to play. They didn't have the option of leaving.
7: It would have resulted in maybe the deaths of the Rolling Stones, who knows? But you've got to realize we were on a stage that was knee high, ready? The height of your knees above the ground in the middle of 300,000 people. How, how would the Rolling Stones have escaped from that if they hadn't played? Impossible.
1: So they played, until they got to the song Under My Thumb, and this is when Meredith Hunter was killed. There is no concrete answer as to why this happened. There just isn't. I've done a lot of research. I've read so much about Altamont. I've read court documents and gone through coroner's reports, articles. I've talked to Meredith's girlfriend, his sister, people on the stage. And we're just not ever going to find out all the details. But here's what we do know. Meredith Hunter came to this show. He had a gun, a 22, and he wasn't looking to hang back deep in the audience. He was up near the stage. He wanted to be right up there when the Stones played. You could see Meredith and Gimme Shelter. The image is dark, but he stands out because of his lime green suit. And right next to him is Patty, the blonde by his side. She sees Meredith getting hassled.
2: You know, and I think, I honestly think he felt like threatened, like he might at some point have to protect himself, you know.
1: Some say he was targeted because he's a black man. Others say he's out of control. An autopsy will later find that he had speed in his system. Whatever the case, it's at this point that he reaches for his gun. You can see this in the documentary too. The gun stands out against Patty's white top.
2: And he, he had turned and he definitely pulled the gun up.
1: And this is the moment. He is a man in a concert pulling a gun. I don't
4: know where, you know, what his thing was, whether he was going to blast everybody off that stage or what, but I saw that gun.
1: We don't know what Meredith was thinking. We don't know if he was going after somebody on stage or... And, uh, everybody started ducking and, uh... If he never intended to threaten the stones like Patty saw.
2: He wasn't pointing it up at, like, the stage or McGregor. He was pointing it at some hell's angels that were coming after him.
1: We don't know. Was he just using it as a threat? There's just no way of knowing, but it's a gun. He's holding it up. He's waving it around. You can argue, and a jury will later agree, that it's justified to knock him down.
2: And I think somehow maybe they punched him again or something because somehow he turned, and the the film shows him actually falling into my arms, And and I'm trying to hold him up, and the knife actually came between his head and my head. Into his neck. Now, see, I didn't remember that. I, to me, in my mind, I remembered it as like be happening far away, and I'm observing this. But I, ne- I never remembered being right there holding him until they showed me the, the, the tape or whatever of it. And then, um, and from then, it just it got bad.
1: That's where the film leaves off. So we don't see this, but accounts and medical reports confirm it. Meredith Hunter is on the ground. The gun is out of his hand. The threat is passed. And the Hells Angels beat
2: him mercilessly. They started stomping him and kicking him. He is stabbed four more times. I remember screaming. I remember trying to go to them, you know, to him, and people pulling me back.
1: He's kicked. Somebody lifts up a garbage can and smashes it over his head.
2: And then I remember this one Hells Angel turning around and just Grabbing me and telling me, what are you crying over him for? He's not worth it. And just pushing me back into the crowd. And then the next thing I see, somehow they took his body around to the side of the stage and they put him under a scaffolding. And I could see the silhouette, you know, like, you know what I mean, of them just continually stomping and kicking him.
1: His death focuses in on so many of the questions that surround Altamont. Were the angels the agitators, or were they put in an unmanageable position? Was Meredith Hunter trying to shoot one of the angels or the stones, or was he just an agitated young man waving a gun? And was lethal force the only answer? While this is all going on, the stones are on stage. They know something's up, but they don't know what it is. They certainly don't know a man's been stabbed and that he's getting beaten to death. But as at so many points in this story, you have to ask, why did they keep going? And when uh, the guy was killed,
7: I told Mick there was a guy with a gun and I wanted him to get off stage. And Mick, bless him, you know, he had balls of a lion, he went, no, 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 we have to finish. And he was right. In retrospect, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, he was right. The, right, the Rolling Stones would have been lynched if they tried to leave there without playing.
0: So at a certain point when the stones are, are playing, um, I just said, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here. Um, and I started hiking up the hill um, to my car where I'd parked it when I came back. And I tripped. You know, it was, a, it was a rocky, muddy hill. And I fell on my face, and I'm lying there, and I noticed two things. One is that there are hundreds of people doing just what I was doing. I hear just footsteps on either side of me, you know, people just continuing up the hill, people getting out of there, while the Stones are still playing. And as I'm lying there, they start playing Gimme Shelter. When I first heard that song and Let It Bleed, I was just shocked. Probably played it 50 times before I even went to the next track, to my mind, the greatest thing they ever did, maybe the greatest thing anybody ever did. And I'm lying there, listening to this song, and it sounds bigger and greater and more powerful than it ever did before. They were
5: brilliant they playing for their fucking lives they were it meant, it was, I mean Charlie was digging deep I mean they were scared out of their fucking minds and really the Rolling Stones out there, it got real all of a sudden it wasn't a song it wasn't a record it was real life, right there I mean they didn't sell anything else but you know, that's who they are You know,
0: it's in their music. I'm just lying there listening to the Rolling Stones and hearing them as I've never heard them before, you know, as I've always wanted to hear them. It was just the perfect
5: storm actually for their music in a way, you know, it was, that music was dark, brilliant music, but the day was dark, it worked. It really did in the worst ways, you know what I mean? In the best or worst way, whatever you say. Uh, I don't think they ever want to repeat a moment like that either. Um, It was terrifying, just terrifying.
8: And then when the concert is over, it was really dark.
1: The band's assistant at the time, Georgia Bergman.
8: There was, like, all of this light on the stage, and then where we were walking, nothing. Uh, And then an ambulance drove up. And then there was a girl outside the ambulance, a blonde, and she was crying.
1: Georgia and the Stones rushed to the helicopter.
8: Suddenly there's this rush of people. And this helicopter, I can't remember how many people it should have held, but maybe seven or eight, something like that. And then there's like maybe 15 to 18 people trying to get on, and we take off. And, 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 it's, and it's quiet. People are quiet. And I'm thinking, well, what? never mind the Hell's Angels. If we crash, I mean, because we're flying at a very unhealthy angle, and when we land, it's a pretty abrupt landing, and we're all very thing. I don't think I ever wanted to get on a helicopter again. Um, everyone is stunned. Just, I mean, we're just grateful. We're just grateful that we're okay.
1: No one, Mick, Keith, nobody's
8: talking. Nobody's talking.
0: Them, is about Altamonti, and you'll be hearing some things from various people in the community. We'll present as many of those 300,000 views as we can.
1: On K San Radio the next day, host Stefan Ponick devoted the day to collecting accounts of Altamont. It was sort of an on-air investigation in the moment. He was one of the first in the media to recognize that something significant had happened. We digitized the recordings of his broadcast heard some of these already in this episode.
2: Uh, a friend of mine uh, stepped on an angel's hand, and the angel uh, I threatened to kill him or something. And these, these things were going on, and we were wondering why the angels were like the guards on stage. It was very frightening. And I think whoever put them on stage as guards, like, it was a very irresponsible act. Like, we were all in terror Which
8: of them. You the of like, the way that the stage had been constructed in um, that at Woodstock, it was elevated... You know, to such a degree that you wouldn't even consider trying to rush it, um, and so the people sat back and they just enjoyed it. Everybody could see and everybody could hear, but the idea of of trying to um, you know the
5: main thing we saw all day was uh, bad trips and freakouts. It was
4: uh, it was really heavy. There was a lot of irresponsibility and a lot of bad uh, bad things going on outside of the Hells Angels trip, and uh, I don't think we should necessarily exclusively give emphasis to that because I think that's uh, overlooking a lot of a lot of other questions. Right. Well, you know, it's easier to blame someone other than ourselves. Right. <laughs> that's what a lot of people want to do. I think you've said something very
1: beautiful. <laughs> I think you really have. Every one of us is a little responsible for that. Why don't we get back to the phones in just a minute? All right. There's one key player we haven't heard from yet. And that's the rolling stones themselves and i tried for months but they didn't want to talk with me and i can understand why these guys have been blamed for this for 50 years why would you want to get on the phone but finally hello hello there jeff keith richards how are you by chance the stones were touring this summer And Keith Richards agreed to an interview, really to talk about the tour. I'm fine, man. How are you? Uh, I'm doing okay. I've asked, like, I think every day for an entire month if I could talk with you for a few minutes because, uh, you know, why not, right? (laughs) Oh, shit, man. I didn't know it was that difficult. So I asked him about the tour. I asked him what he might play in his set, and then I had to take my chance Uh, to ask him about Altamont. Um, Keith, you know, I, I know this probably is not something you think about much, but you know, this is the, you know, 50 years since that ridiculously terrible uh, Altamon thing. Do, do you ever think about that day? It does
9: crop up occasionally, um, uh, the, but never, not usually when I'm working. I mean, it, it's, it was just something that happened, and occasionally it comes to mind, or somebody else will say, oh, I was there or something, and you sort of remember it. But... Um, Otherwise, it was just a little of a sort of nightmarish uh, day, I think, not just for us, but for everybody.
1: You know, I'm, uh, I showed part of that to my boy, who's nine, only part, because I wanted him yeah. to see what the Rolling Stones look like in that moment of time. And, um, he, yeah. and, you know, I'm watching that thing, and uh, I just thought, what is Keith Richards thinking as he's on stage during that, during that moment? Do you still feel what it was like on there?
9: yeah it was touch and go and it was just a matter of uh you know somebody t- t- trying to make a decision and i i mean i i just said listen we're gonna we'll stop in playing if this if, if you can't call these things down and uh but i mean uh, otherwise it you know you're totally powerless and and at the same time you know that everybody else around you including the hell's angels are totally out of it and powerless too. It's just, uh, and you're just going to get anarchy and mayhem. Luckily, just it could have gotten a lot worse, man. That could have been a really big disaster.
1: You mean if you, if you, if you left instead of continuing to play?
9: Yeah. Oh, who knows what what else would have happened? I mean, it, just, it was on the brink of uh, the whole thing uh, erupting uh, and out there in the californian wilds you know the, the, but, the um, dead actually
1: the dead actually took didn't even they, they just got there and said i watched that thing and they go bummer man and then they walk they, they walk away uh, they they obviously thought the only thing to do is just to quit you know
9: yeah i mean uh, at the same time i mean i can hardly analyze what all on right now you know
1: Fifty years later and Keith Richards still hasn't figured out what to think about Altamont. In some ways that seems like a cop-out, but after spending so much time reporting on what happened that day, I can actually see how that's true. That's the thing about chaos, right? Defies order and neat packaging. There was no one person to blame for what went wrong, just like there was no one person who could have saved it and quieted the violence either. We can try to make sense of Altamont by just calling it an epic failure. We could also think, like Jerry, that it was the flip side of the peace and love that people found at Woodstock. But maybe that's even too easy. I think about one thing Griel Marcus told me. That maybe the ugliness and violence of Altamont was always there. Right there alongside the hope that peace, love, and free music would win out in the end.
0: Yeah, it was the, you know, this great wave the 60s were a great wave and it gets to altamont and it crests and then it recedes then you see all the garbage and dead fish and left behind when the when the water recedes um, you know here you are at the literal end of the 60s, in December of 1969, and you're seeing horror and ugliness where you expect to see thought and beauty.
1: You've been listening to All Told. This episode was produced by Bishop Sand, edited by Carol Alderman and me, with help from Lillian Cunningham. My written piece, along with some great video of the characters involved, is at wapo.st altamont. Audio in this episode is from Rhino Records, Sony, George Feast, Stefan Ponick's recordings of k Sand Radio on December 7th, 1969. I'm Jeff Edgers. Thanks for listening.